All right, so this morning we're up to chapter 2, verses 3 to 10 in our verse-by-verse study through the book of 2 Peter. Why did Peter write the letter of 2 Peter? Well, we know it's simply because he's warning believers. He's warning you and I. He's warning us about false teachers and false teaching. That's the reason why Peter wrote this letter in the first place. And sure enough, when we reached chapter 2 last week, we saw this very thing. We saw that Peter launched into the subject matter of false teachers. And what Peter did is that he started chapter 2 by reminding us of the reality of false teachers. And sometimes as believers, we just need to be reminded of that. Sometimes we can find our little holy huddles, our little Christian groups, and kind of get on with life. And sometimes what we can do is we can forget that there, are, there is actually a battle going on, that there is actually a being, Satan, and his accompany, uh, com, uh, those who accompany him, uh, the demons, who are coming against the church, coming against Christians, coming against truth. And so what Peter did, first of all, is that he reminded us. He reminded us of the reality of false teachers. He reminded us, firstly, in verse 1, of the sphere of false teachers. We were reminded that a false teacher is not found at work within the unbelieving world, but instead a false teacher is found at work within the church. He then also reminded us, secondly, in addition to the sphere of false teachers, he also reminded us of the success of false teachers, and that was in verse 2. The success of false teachers, that the immature spiritually and the unconverted spiritually, they will flock to the ministries of these false teachers simply because the message of the false teachers, it's going to have a fleshly appeal to the hearers. But in addition to the sphere and the success of false teachers, we saw in verse 3, the sustaining motive of false teachers, that false teachers are all about what they can get rather than what they can give. And so, of course, what that reminded us of is simply that we should always be on high alert we should always be on high alert when there's a person who is overemphasizing the subject matter of giving or overemphasizing the subject matter of money or earthly possessions or in the way in which they preach, they have a, a primarily or a predominant earthly focus or earthly perspective. We want to be careful of those people because they fit very much with what the Bible calls to be a false teacher. And really what that led us up to is that's where, we got, that's where we left off last week, halfway through verse 3. Whereas in today's passage, what we see is that Peter moves from talking about the reality of false teachers to now the judgment for false teachers. This is the central thought on the mind of the Apostle Peter as he's penning this part of his letter from partway through verse 3 right through to partway through verse 10. The judgment of false teachers. Now, I suppose it's probably worth us just asking ourselves straight off the bat an introductory thought. And that really has to do with the question, why? Why is it that Peter felt it necessary to communicate the, to his original audience the reality of the judgment of false teachers? Well, why did Peter feel it necessary to say that? Why couldn't he just give us a description? Why couldn't he just moved on and just, hey, well, why did he feel as though... He had to talk about specifically the judgment of false teachers. Well, there are really two main reasons that we're going to be able to extract from today's text. Firstly, Paul wanted to reassure believers that the existence and the work of false teachers, it had not escaped the attention of God. 
In other words, God could see what was happening. God was full aware of what was taking place. And as we're going to see, Peter states very, very clearly about the certainty that false teachers will receive the judgment for their unjust actions. But secondly, in addition to reassuring believers that, hey, God is aware, not unaware of um, false teachers. Secondly, Peter wants to reassure believers that God will keep them and God will preserve them despite the lies, despite the deception of false teachers that are around them. That's the two main reasons that Peter wants to write this part of what it is that he's writing in today's text. Now, we can understand why these two things are very good and very necessary for us as believers to keep in mind when it comes to false teachers. It's very, very important for us to understand that, that God's delay in dealing with false teachers here and now, this in no way is saying that God approves of what's taking place, nor does it indicate that God is incapable of doing anything about it. But instead, Peter reminds us that the ministries of false teachers, each and every one of them, they all have an expiry date. They will expire. They're not going to last forever. And God has put that expiry date in himself, right there into the calendar. At the end of the day, Peter wants us to understand that the ministries of false teachers, they are not outside of the sovereignty of God. And although we as believers, we are to be aware of the ministry of false teachers, we are to watch out for the ministries of false teachers, we need to avoid the ministries of false teachers. What Peter reminds us in today's passage is that God is more than capable of keeping us and preserving us so that we will not ultimately be swept away by the lies and the deceptions of these false teachers. Now, by way of an outline, by way of an outline of today's study on the subject of judgment for false teachers, we can divide the passage into three main parts. Firstly, we're going to see in verse 3 the promise of judgment. It's in verse 3, the promise of judgment for false teachers. Secondly, in verses 4 to 8, the precedent of judgment. And then finally, in verses 8 and 9, the pattern of judgment. So on the subject of judgment for false teachers, verse 3, the promise, the precedent, and the pattern. So that's where we're going. So let's begin now by giving our attention to verse 3, where we see here the promise of judgment for false teachers. And really, we're only going to be focusing on halfway through the second half of that verse, but I'm going to begin reading it right from the beginning just to help to give us a bit of a, you know, a lead into what it is that Peter's actually saying. So let's give our attention now to verse 3 where the Apostle Peter says this. He says, By covetousness they will exploit you with deceptive words. Now here's where we want to focus on. For a long time their judgment has not been idle and the destruction does not slumber. Now let's just stop there. What is Peter wanting to get across in the second part of the verse here? Well, the first part, we know that he was talking about the, the, the sustaining motive of the false teacher, right? Covetousness, what they can get rather than what they can give. How are they going to do that? Exploiting us through deceptive words. But what is the main idea on Peter's mind in the second part of verse 3? What is the point that he's wanting to get across to us? Well, simply put, it is this. He's simply stating that God's judgment for false teachers is a sure thing for the future. <clears throat> when, Paul, when Peter says, for a long time, if you see it there in verse 3, for a long time, the judgment of false teachers has not been idle, this tells us that 
The judgment of false teachers has been carefully planned and carefully calculated by God himself ahead of time. I mean, Jude, he puts it this way when talking about the, the subject of false teachers. It says in Jude 4, it says, Concern for certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation. I mean, that's the same thing that Peter's trying to get across there as well, right? That the, the, the judgment for false teachers, it is not an afterthought to God, but it's something that God has planned out and even decreed ahead of time. And what's more, when Peter says that their judgment has not been idle, notice that there in verse 3 as well, what this tells us is that the judgment for a false teacher is something that is being compounded as time goes on. It's being compounded. It's not idle. In other words, it's not staying in one place. It's increasing. In other words, with every crafty lie and with every deceiving word, false teachers are actively accumulating the wrath of God which will one day be realized on their entrance into hell. That's what he means. And if that's not clear enough, notice what Peter says next. He goes even a step further in the last part of verse 3 where he says, and their destruction does not slumber. Well, the word slumber means, it means sleeps, snoring, having a snooze. What Peter does here is that he, he pictures, he almost personifies destruction as being that of an executioner. An executioner does, that, that, that is not asleep. He is he's fully awake. He is fully ready to administer the judgment of God when that time comes. Now, at this point, it's worth us asking the question as to why Peter felt it necessary to reassure believers of the certainty that God would one day judge false teachers. Why is it that he's decided to do this in the first place? Well, there's probably a couple of reasons, but here's the main reason for why he wants to reassure them of the certainty of their judgment. Peter needed to refute the false teaching of these false teachers and what it is that they were spreading in the first place. What do I mean? Well, after all, one of the, what was one of the, the, the main issues that these false teachers were targeting? What, what was that? What was one of the main things, one of the main doctrines that the false teachers in the time that Peter was writing that they were trying to undermine? What were they trying to dilute? What were they trying to deny? It had to do with the doctrine of the second coming of Christ. It had to do with the doctrine that Christ will one day return a second time at some point in the future. And if you were here just a few weeks ago, you're, you may remember that where Peter spoke about this very thing. He, he, spoke about, he spoke to an accusation that these false teachers had laid upon him who were just trying to say that the apostles' doctrine or the teaching on the second coming of Christ, it was just a fabricated story. It was just fables, fairy tales. It was just stuff that they had made up. Or as Peter put it in 2 Peter, if you draw your attention to 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 16, this is how he puts it. He says, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's talking about the second coming of Christ. That's the accusation that was coming against him by these false teachers. Made up stories, cunningly deceived plots to try to, to deceive you. That's what it is that they were saying. Now, of course, when we flip over to 1 Peter chapter 3, when we get there, Peter talks about the way these false teachers, they mocked the doctrine of the second coming of Christ. They ridiculed it. 
the apostles taught it clearly, but their false teachers mocked it and tried to undermine it. For instance, we read in 2 Peter chapter 3, <clears throat> verses 3 and 4, Peter actually quotes what the false teachers were actually saying, and this is what he says. He says, Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, and here's the quote, this is how they were mocking the doctrine of the second coming of Christ. Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Now here's the question. Why do you think the false teachers were trying to undermine and deny the doctrine of the second coming of Christ? Why were they doing that? Why is it that, that Peter feels it necessary to even address this? Why was the doctrine of the second coming of Christ such a big deal to them, such a big target to these false teachers? Well, think about it. What does the doctrine of the second coming of Christ actually entail? Because every time we have to understand here that the doctrine of the second coming of Christ involves Christ coming to earth a second time, and what's he going to do? He's going to establish his kingdom, right? But what else is he going to do? He's going to be judging his enemies when he comes a second time. Establishing his kingdom for those who are his, and he's going to judge his enemies. Can we see why the false teachers did not like Christ's second coming? They didn't like the doctrine of the, of the second coming of Christ. It's because every time the second coming of Christ is mentioned, what was it a reminder to these false teachers? It was a reminder to them about the judgment of God, which was looming. And if you can take away... If you do away with God's judgment upon the world, well then what, what are you going to do? If you can successfully take away from the, 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 the doctrine of Christ's second coming, what are you going to do? You're going to take away the idea or do away with the idea of God's future judgment for sin. And if you do away with God's future judgment upon the world, then you remove all accountability for one's actions. You take that out of the picture and what happens? You take judgment out of the picture and what happens? Well, then it gives a person a, a license to do whatever that they want to do. Well, there's no reason to worry about that. Things are going to continue the way that they've always continued, the false teachers are saying. It was an undermining of the doctrine of the second coming of Christ, in particular, the judgment that was coming to the ungodly. And this is exactly, however, what the false teachers wanted. They wanted to remove accountability for their actions. They wanted to do away with the idea that there'd be future recompense for the way that they live their lives here and now. But what does Peter do in verse 3? He reminds us that despite the, what the false teachers were saying, there is a coming day of reckoning for the enemies of Christ. Who are the enemies of Christ? Well, obviously there's false teachers. But by the way, it happens to be every single person who does not bow their knee and place their trust in Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said it very, very plainly. He said, if you are not for me, you are against me. I mean, there's no middle ground. It's not like I am kind of have a foot in, in both camps. There's no, in, in the mind of God, there is no sitting on the fence where salvation is concerned. You are either for me or you're against me. And what I can say is that if you are not for Christ, it is not going to be a, a, a picture or it's not going to be something to look forward to when Christ comes again a second time. It, it really isn't. 
It is not going to be a joyous time. You are not going to be part of what God does when he, when he establishes his kingdom here on earth. But instead, you will be part of the number who will be judged. Judged by God. Thrown into outer darkness. Reserved in the lake of fire. Reserved in hell for all eternity. And what is the difference, my friends? It all has to do with who's going to be paying for your sin. You see, sin must always be punished. There must always be a punishment for sin. There will always be a punishment for sin. And there's one of two options. Either you can pay it yourself, and you can pay that for the, the, the punishment for your sin in hell for all of eternity, or you can trust that another paid the penalty in your, in your place, and that is Jesus Christ. There is no other options. There is one or the other. Every single sin that you have committed, every single sin that I have committed, it must be punished one way or another. The question is, who is going to take the punishment for it? Is it going to be you? Or is it going to be, you're going to place your faith in Jesus, that Jesus paid that in your, in your place and therefore have eternal life? Can you kind of see why the false teachers who are not clinging to Jesus, who are actually against Jesus, can you see how they wouldn't have liked to talk about the second coming of Christ? Because it would hold them accountable for their actions. Jesus said, if you're not for me, you're against me. A person can try to pretend that that reality doesn't exist. A person can try to pretend that that reality, somehow they can reason it away. But despite a person's best efforts, Peter makes it very clear that there is certainty when it comes to the judgment of Christ's enemies. There is certainty. A day that is appointed for that very thing. And so what is Peter saying? Well, we see that he promises judgment. But you see, Peter doesn't leave it there. Having explained the promise of judgment for false teachers in verse 3, he then goes on in verses 4 to 8 to explain the precedent of false teachers or for, um, oh, sorry, the precedent for their judgment. The promise of judgment. Secondly, the precedent for, ju for their judgment. You see, what Peter wants to do here is he wants to demonstrate something to us. He wants to demonstrate the, the way that God has executed divine judgment in the past. And the reason for why he wants us to think about how God has executed divine judgment in the past is to try to support the fact of how it is that God will also execute divine judgment upon false teachers in the future. This is what was on the mind of the Apostle Peter as he writes this next section of the text that we're looking at. And so the way that Peter does this in verses 4 to 8 is that he points us to three examples. Three examples from the Old Testament, more specifically, three examples from the book of Genesis. Now notice in verse 4, the very first example that he gives of God, an example of God's divine judgment in the past, first example of, divine, of God's divine judgment that he gives is God's judgment upon the fallen angels, demons. So let's give our attention now to verse 4. He says, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into the chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. Now let's just wait there for a moment. In this first example that Peter gives here, he draws our attention back to the sin of 
fallen angels. Those are demons. Now, Peter doesn't give the specifics as to what that actually sin actually was. He just said those who sinned. So he doesn't give us the specifics of what the sin actually was. But if we jump over to Jude, verses, uh, verses 6 and 7, well, we see there that more detail is given specifically to these fallen angels. Jude puts it this way. He says, And the angels who do not keep their proper domain, but left their abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Are we cross-referencing correctly? Yes, we are. We know we're cross-referencing cross, cross, cross referencing correctly because of how similar the description is concerning the judgment of these fallen angels. Both Peter and Jude refer to these angels being reserved for judgment, being in chains, and also being in darkness. There's a similarity that says, so we know that the cross-reference is correct. Now, in case we're wondering, the specific sin that, that, that Jude references here, it has to do with the account that's found in Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. Now, in Genesis chapter 6, we have, leading up to just before Noah's flood, or the flood at Noah's time, we see there the account of where fallen angels or demons, they came and possessed human men. And when they possessed human men, what they did is that they cohabited, or being a little bit more specific, they reproduced with earthly women. Demons possessing earthly men who then go and reproduce with human women. And this is one of the primary things that actually brought about the worldwide flood in the first place, because their offspring were wicked, like you wouldn't believe. And so let's just read it for ourselves Genesis chapter 6, just by way of reminder for us. I'm going to pick up in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 1. And what are we doing here? We're, we're just reminding ourselves of this Old Testament illustration, the first Old Testament illustration that Peter gives to us of God's divine judgment, which happens to be upon the fallen angels. Genesis chapter 6 and verse 1. Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and the daughters were born to them, <coughs> that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves all, um, of all whom they chose. Verse 3 says, And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. There were giants on the earth in those days, and so afterward, when the sons of um, um, God came in to the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. So... Uh, those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Verse 5 says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of the heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and that he was grieved in his heart. And so the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing, and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And so although God judged the human, human beings in a physical sense with a, a worldwide flood, well, Peter reminds us in verse 4, thinking back to this account here, that at the same time that God was judging the human beings, God also judged the fallen angels in a spiritual sense. He incarcerated them. He took them to a, a, a holding place. 
reserved there for judgment at the appointed time. Now, if you're here several months back, we went through a series that we titled Know Your Enemy. It talked about the doctrine of Satan, the doctrine of demons. And you'll know that Peter is certainly not saying that all fallen angels, that all demons are now locked up at this time, right? We know that's not the case. Instead, we know that Scripture teaches that there are many demons, many demons who are still actively at work, still actively doing their thing in the world today. However, both Peter and Jude, they tell us here that the angels, that, that, well, the angels that Peter and Jude tell us about, it's, it's a reference here to the specific ones that relate back to the Genesis chapter 6 situation where those inhabited human men, demons inhabited human men, and they reproduced with human woman. That's the specific, the specific sin of the angels. That's the reference which we go back to. Those are the angels that are currently locked up, incarcerated until the day of the great white throne judgment where God will open up the, the Lamb's book of life. Their names will not be found in that and therefore they will be cast into the lake of fire. And so this is the, this is the first example. This is the first example that Peter draws our attention to to demonstrate how God's divine judgment has worked in the past. But there's also a second example. So the first example, the fallen angels... But moving on to verse 5, we're given a second example of God's divine judgment in, the, in, the, in history. And this time it has to do with the worldwide flood in Noah's day. So let's give our attention now, verse 5, and notice what Peter says. He says, And did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. And so what Peter reminds us, of, uh, reminds us of here is that not only did God judge certain fallen angels, but he also wiped out the earth's population of human beings, and he did so with a flood, with the exception of eight people, as he says there. Apart from eight people, the entire existence of, 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 of um, land animal and also human beings were wiped out. Now what's interesting <clears throat> is that Despite the wickedness of the people in Noah's day, God did not immediately intervene and execute divine judgment. He didn't do it immediately. But instead, what happened? God revealed his plan to Noah of what he was going to do, and he revealed it to him about a century before he actually did it, before the judgment actually came. And it was during that time, during that extended period of time, that Noah labored, as he says there in Peter, he labored as a preacher of righteousness. He labored warning people of the impending judgment that God was to bring upon them. But as we know, who responded to that message? Who responded to the message of, of righteousness, which, which Noah preached for a hundred years? Only his family. He probably preached it to himself, so you could probably say eight. He preached it to himself preached it to his other family members and there was only him and his family who were, who were actually saved from that judgment. And so in response to the utter sinfulness of mankind, what did God do? God destroyed every person and every land animal that inhabited on the earth. Yes, God's divine judgment was delayed. It didn't come straight away. It didn't happen immediately. But at the appointed time, it did come to pass. 
which is the exact point that Peter is wanting to get across in today's passage in relation to the judgment of false teachers. Yes, it is not happening right now. They're, they're at work right now. But let us not think for one moment that any delay is because God has overlooked it or slipped his mind or disinterested in it. There is, will be an appointed time which is still to come. But in addition to this example of the worldwide flood, well, Peter gives us a third example of God's divine judgment also found in the book of Genesis. And we're going to see this now in our passage today, verses 6 to 8. So let's give our attention here. Peter, Peter reminds us of the account of when God destroyed the wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. So let's take a look how Peter puts it, beginning verse 6. He says, "...and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes..." condemn them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly, and delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Now, <clears throat> In this third historical example of God's divine judgment, what Peter reminds us of is when God absolutely obliterated the cities known as Sodom and Gomorrah. The account of the obliteration taking place, annihilated, wiped off the face of the earth. The account where this is actually recorded for us is in Genesis chapter 19. Now I'm just going to draw your attention to verses 24 to 25, which really explain the destruction of those cities. It says in Genesis 19, verse 24, Then the Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from the, from the, the Lord out of heaven. So he overthrew those cities, all the plain, all the inhabitants of the cities, and what grew on the ground. Obliteration. We're not just talking about everyone got sick and died. We're saying like everything, the vegetation, the animals, everything was just wiped out. God's judgment on these cities, these wicked cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, it was so complete, so thorough, that we still, and archaeologists still have absolutely no idea where the locations of these two cities are. I mean, there's some thoughts as to where Sodom and Gomorrah may have once been, but there is no, absolutely no evidence to say that's where they are. There's not a, a single trace of their physical existence. This is how thorough God's judgment was upon these two historic cities. But similar to the flood, God did in fact save some people. He saved some people from utter destruction. The majority were destroyed in both cases, right? But there were some that were spared. In this case, Sodom and Gomorrah, it was Abraham's nephew, Lot, and his daughters. And similar to Noah, Lot lived in a culture a culture that he was surrounded by filthy conduct, filthy wickedness. Notice in verses 7 and 8, this wasn't easy for Lot. It was not easy for Lot to live in a culture that was anti-God. It was difficult for him. Peter says here that Lot felt oppressed. He says there that Lot's soul felt tormented. Being in a culture that was moving in a rejection rejection of God moving away from God. There's an internal turmoil which went on inside Lot's heart as he saw what was taking place around him. 
as he heard the things that were being spoken about. It wasn't easy for him. But again, although the residents of Sodom and Gomorrah probably thought that they were accountable to no one, probably they had no, no regard for any higher authority, although they thought they could probably just live any way that they wanted to live without there being any consequences whatsoever, those historic residents of Sodom and Gomorrah, they found out firsthand just how wrong they were. Critically wrong. Fatally wrong. God was not in their minds. God did not come into their thought life. They were looking at life just in a one-dimensional kind of way. They were not thinking about the afterlife. They were not thinking about what comes next. So fixated on the here and now that they lost sight of the fact that they were headed in the pathway to destruction. Similar to Noah, Lot stood against this sin in his day. He wouldn't bend to it. He had people at his door. He had sin come right up to the, the doorway of his house, and he refused to let it in. And God preserved him in that. God helped him in that. He sustained him in that. Similar to Noah, Lot stood against the sin of his day, along with all the immoral practices that were taking place around him, and in the end, God spared his life. And so, in one sense, what Peter has been explaining, it's kind of a comfort to us, isn't it? It's a comfort to us as believers knowing that although it can be difficult for us to live in a culture, <clears throat> live in a society, live in a world which is, which is ungodly, it's reassurance what Peter's saying here that we are still on the right track. Even though the majority around us might be given to a certain way of living, although we may be the minority, we are on the right track and we have nothing to fear. The right thing to do is not always the popular thing to do. We must keep that in mind. The correct thing to do is not always the biblical thing. Uh, the, biblical is, is the biblical thing to do. The biblical thing is not always seen as being the correct thing to do. And in another sense, <clears throat> in addition to a comfort for believers, knowing that we are on the right track, even though it's difficult around us, in another sense, what Peter is explaining here, it's a warning to those who reject the truth. A warning specifically warning those who would teach what is false. And so this is really the case that Peter is wanting to make in this portion of his letter. Verse 3, he's talked to us about the promise of judgment for false teachers. Peter then goes and strengthens that thought even more by explaining the precedent of judgment for false teachers in verses 4 to 8, pointing to three examples of how it is that God's judged wickedness in, in the past which then leads us finally to verses 8 and 9, and this is where we see the pattern of judgment for false teachers. And really what we see here, really this is, this is where Peter makes his application, or this is where Peter makes his conclusion based upon what he's already said leading up to this point. How do we know that these are, these are concluding thoughts or more application thoughts? Well, <clears throat> if you look in verse 4, Peter began the sentence with the word if, Right? There was an if statement there. If God has done this to the fallen angels, if he's done, done, done that to the, um, to, to the people in, in, in Noah's day, if he's done this and that to, to, to Sodom and Gomorrah. In other words, 
he draws his conclusion. He says, if God has judged in the past, in the past with these three specific types of examples, then, conclusion, if you give your attention to verse 9, then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust for judgment for the day of judgment. And especially those who walk, um, walk according to the flesh and the lust of, light, uh, of uncleanness and despise authority. And so, what is the conclusion that Peter wants to draw to our attention here in verses 8 and 9? What is the pivotal point that he's been kind of working towards beginning in, in verse 3? Well, essentially, the conclusion is this. Just as God knew who he, who he would judge and who he would rescue in the past, well, we can be reassured that God will do the same in the present and also the future. I'll say it again. What he's getting across in verses 8 and 9, this is the conclusion. Just as God knew who he would judge and who he would rescue in the past, we can be reassured of the exact same thing for both the present and also the future. In other words, Peter wants us to understand there is somewhat of a pattern that is here. There's been a pattern throughout the, the human history, and that pattern is still applicable right here when it comes to the divine judgment of God. And what is the pattern? Well, the pattern is this. Leading up to the time that judgment takes place, the culture around us becomes increasingly worse. However, as Paul points out in verse 9, God preserves and keeps his people during those difficult times. How does Peter put it? Notice it there in your Bibles. He says, Verse 9, the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations. Now, the word temptations there, it's not referring to just that internal inclination of ours to sin, to do what is wrong. It's not talking about that personal inclination. Instead, here in this instance, Peter is referring to God delivering his people from the difficulties that will come about by false teachers. He knows how to deliver the godly out of the trials or the attacks that confront the believer in the ungodly culture that is around them. He can spare us. He can preserve us. He can ensure that we get through to the end. And so really, the message of Peter here is twofold. Assurance for the believer, condemnation for false teachers or those who are unconverted. In both cases, we're reminded that God is well aware of what's taking place upon the earth. There is nothing that escapes the attention of God. He sees it all. He can see your thought life. He can see our actions. He can see what it is that we're saying. Nothing escapes the attention of God. And just because there is a delay in God intervening, we shouldn't for one moment think that God is disinterested or unable to act. Instead, we need to simply remind ourselves of how it is that God has acted in the past. How would you describe the residents of earth in the days of Noah who rejected the message that he preached, the message of righteousness? How would we describe those people in the times of Sodom and Gomorrah who just pushed it out of their minds to say there's going to be no judgment of God. There's going to be no day of recompense for the way that I'm living right now. 
Well, in hindsight, we would call them fools, wouldn't we? You were foolish. Don't you realize that judgment and destruction was just around the corner and here you were playing let's pretend? Being like one of those three monkeys, you know, see no evil, speak no evil, hear no, say no evil, hear no evil, lined up in a row there. You consider those people to be fools in the past to not seriously consider what was about to happen. Well then, what would we say to those today who would do exactly the same? Who would be sitting here and acting as though, hey, everything in life is just going to continue the way that it is. There is going to be no future day where I'm going to be accountable to God for my actions here and now. What I do concerning whether I trust that Jesus died for my sin or not trust that Jesus died for my sin, it doesn't really matter after all. I mean, what would we say to a person who would just casually walk through life like this? What would we say to a person who would say, I can live any old way that I want and that whole Christian belief of, you know, God coming and and judging and interacting and um, intervening in a divine kind of way, that's just a load of fairy tales. Is that not what the people in Noah's day said? Is that not what perhaps the people in Sodom and Gomorrah's day said? But what happened? And Peter is saying that the same God who judged in a like manner in the past will also, in a very like manner, judge the same way in the future. And I suppose that point of application for us now is, well, which side do we stand on? Uh, Are we the ones that are with the vast majority, like in Noah's day and Sodom and Gomorrah's day, heading for destruction? Or is it just the few, perhaps, who, although you look stupid to the eyes of the culture, although you look distinctive and despised and mocked by the culture, you are actually leading in the direction of safety, of rescue. God is rescuing you. Each one of us here today find ourselves in one of two places. And the question I ask for you is, which side are you on? Are you on the, on the path to life? Or are you on the path to destruction? Are you trusting that Jesus paid for your sin and therefore you have life to look forward to? Or have you pushed that to one side thinking that's just a bunch of fairy tales. I can live any way I want and there's no, there's no greater being that's going to be accountable for me. Friends, if we're thinking that way, it's, it's not right. It's just as smart as the guys back in Noah's day. That wasn't smart to think that way, by the way. Or in Sodom and Gomorrah's day, it wasn't smart. Instead, we need to remind ourselves how God has acted in human history in the past will give us certainty of how it is that he will act in the future. Well, next Sunday, we're going to be moving on to verses 10 to 22, and we're going to see here a description of false teachers. Last week, the reality of false teachers. This week, the the judgment for false teachers. Next week, the description of false teachers. But in the meantime, let let us think about how we need to respond in light of what it is that we've seen from God's word today. What is our response? Of course, at that very elementary level, we want to be asking ourselves, which side are we on? That's important. That's the foundational side. But for those of us who know that we are on the right side, on Christ's side, we are heading in the direction of eternal life, well, how how should we respond to the text that we've seen today? Well, I think there are really two main focuses for us. One is evangelism. One is holiness, living in a way that is right before God. 
I think that's what we can draw from today's passage. Because think about it. How should it spur us on the fact that God is coming one day to judge the unbelieving world? What should we be about? Should we just get on with it and just sort of live peaceably among ourselves and that's kind of it? What does Scripture tell us? What sh- how should we be responding in a culture that is walking away from God? Well, number one, we must be evangelistic. We need to be sharing our faith to those who are, are perishing. Similar to Noah, we need to be preachers of righteousness. Knowing that our message may not be accepted or received from the vast majority that are around us, but still, God is holding us accountable. You might say, well, I haven't really got much of a response from everyone. Well, try talking to Noah about that. His ministry, his evangelism went for 100 years and only his family was converted. Only his family was saved. Does it make you feel so bad? You don't have it that bad after all, do you? Similar to Noah, we need to be preachers of righteousness. We need to be taking the, 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 the message of that God is righteous. And we are not. That's why there's a problem. And that's why we need Christ to pay for our sins. We need to take that message. And so as we're thinking about today's passage and we're thinking about application for us, we need to think of evangelism. It would be a very different story if Noah, if God had told Noah, this is what I'm going to do and you go and prepare and here's the message to tell the unbelieving world. It would be a very different story if Noah kept his mouth shut. You have to ask the question, how could he keep his mouth shut? How could he know that the entire world was going to be destroyed, the unbelieving world would be destroyed, but Noah just sat there building his own ark for him and his family? It would be a very different story, wouldn't it? We wouldn't really look very favorably at Noah. But instead we see here that he was a preacher of righteousness. He gave, um, he was a mouthpiece of God. He gave the people around him every warning that he could possibly give to those who were around him of the coming judgment. The blood wasn't on Noah's hands. It was on those who rejected the message. And so I think it it forces us to think about evangelism. But secondly, it it forces us to think about holiness. It, It forces us to think about how we need to be living in light of the culture that is moving away from God. And of course, in addition to the example of Noah, we also have the example of Lot. What did Lot do? He lived in a society that was perhaps far more wicked than we live in right now. But instead, what would he see Lot doing is that he lives distinct from the rest of the culture. He's willing to, even when the sin comes right up to his doorstep, he will stand there and say, no, I am not going the way of the rest of the world around me. It is not going to happen. And I just want to encourage us in that to, to really think about that. And, and I, want, I want to say that to the younger ones that are here today as well. I'm talking about the teenagers or preteens and perhaps some of you young adults as well. There is a, a real temptation that you face right now. And in many respects, you get caught up in the world that is all around you right now. And you see things, and you see the way that people dress. You see the way that people talk. You see the way that people dance. You see them do all these sorts of things, and there is something in you that goes, I want to be like everyone else. Can I just warn you and encourage you not not to go down the path that everyone else is going if it's against what God's Word wants? 
you don't want to be caught up just like all of those ones that were in Sodom and Gomorrah who were eventually destroyed, but instead you want to be like Lot. You want to be the one that said, you know what, maybe it's only my family and I in my circle right now that are doing the things that God wants. Or maybe there's just a select families that are in my life right now that are doing the, the things that God wants. But just because we're the minority, it doesn't mean that we're wrong. Just because we're the minority, it doesn't mean that we're on the wrong side. And I can say for you younger ones, you have a real temptation right now because every single you know, magazine article that you see, every YouTube thing that's presented to you, you have so much coming your way to say, hey, go down this track rather than that track. I want to encourage you that although it's difficult, someone else knew who it was difficult. It was Lot. His soul anguished, yet his daughters followed father's lead and they were spared from the judgment that came. So for, for you preteens and teens and the young adults as well, just, just be on high alert. High alert when you feel that your heart has been pulled in a direction of the culture and what you're going to find is that those who try to be the mouthpiece to say that's wrong or that's not the way to go, what you're going to find is that that voice you're going to second guess at times, which will probably be the voice of your parents or your pastor or other those who, who are in your life as well. You'll think, are you sure that they, my parents actually know what they're talking about? Well, can I just say, children, your parents actually do know what they're talking about and you want to follow their instruction, even if it makes you look a little bit different than the rest of the world. You may not get to fit in in the way that you may perhaps like in the here and now, but you know that you'll have eternal life waiting for you after that. And that's, that's far better. It's far better that you are named in the Lamb's Book of Life and have eternal life that awaits you rather than just being part of the gang or the crowd in the here and the now. And so we want to be focusing on evangelism. We want to be focusing on holiness, being distinct from the rest of the ungodly culture around us, even if it requires, like Lot, uprooting our family and moving to different circumstances where that can be made possible, if God leads in that kind of way. And so let us just help these thoughts just to, just to cultivate and, and marinate in our thinking in the week ahead. Let us remember that, that any delay in God's judgment is not that he doesn't care, but that he will come and it will happen. And in a similar way to no and to Lot, let's be preachers and let us stand distinct, distinctly, unashamedly as followers of Christ in this culture. I'm going to pray in one moment, so I'm just going to invite the, the music team to, to come on up so they're ready to actually uh, to, to help us as we come to come as we finish with our, our last song but in the meantime let's just close now um, with a word of prayer so let's just commit the time now to God's hands Father thank you so much for your word thank you for the time that we hear today Lord we thank you that thankful for the reminder that you are sovereign that none of the things that are taking place in this culture today are um, have escaped your attention help us as we get tempted by things that are taking place around us help us to remember how it is that you've acted in the past and help us to know how to respond then for what the future holds. Help us to be about evangelism like Noah, being a preacher of righteousness, and help us to stand distinctly from the way the world is going, just like we find in the example of Lot. We need your help with this, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.